Good morning. Good to be with you again. Uh, John and Megan are away on a anniversary getaway trip. I guess it's all right to tell you that. And so we um, wish them a good trip. We want to pick it up in verse 20 of chapter 9 and then also add uh, the three verses of chapter 10 as we finish this series. They have just set the days for the celebration both in the city of Susa and in the outlying areas, rural towns on the 14th and 15th of Adar. And so we pick it up in verse 20 of chapter 9. It's the word of God, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month, Adar, and also the 15th day <coughs> of the same year by year, as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies, and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness, and from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. And so the Jews accepted what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast poor, that is, cast lots, to crush and destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that his evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head, and that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore, they call these days Purim, after the term poor. Therefore, because of all that was written in this letter and of what they had faced in this matter, and of what had happened to them, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring to all who joined them, that without fail they would keep these two days according to what was written and at the time appointed every year, that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation in every clan, province, and city, and that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. Then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihail, and Mordecai the Jew gave full written authority confirming this second letter about Purim. Letters were sent to all the Jews to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus <clears throat> in words of peace and truth that these days of Purim should be observed at their appointed seasons as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther obligated them, and as they had obligated themselves and their offspring with regard to their fasts and their lamenting. The command of Esther confirmed these practices of Purim, and it was recorded in writing. King Ahasuerus imposed tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea, and all the acts of his power and might, and the full account 
of the high honor of Mordecai to which the king advanced him? Are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus, and he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers, for he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. Let's pray. Thank you again, Father, for your holy, inspired, infallible, inerrant word as it comes to us again this day. And so would you please use it to both comfort and afflict us where necessary. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Have you ever heard the expression, it's all over but the shouting? It's those last moments in a sporting event when the winning team is so far ahead, the losers can't possibly come back in time. And even though the clock is still running, the fans come pouring out uh, onto the court or the field in celebration. Well, that's what we're seeing today. And our focus is that the shouting is very important. By way of outline, verses 20 through 22 tell us it's important for those who experienced it firsthand. Then 23 through 32 tell us it's also important for our offspring and future generations, that's us. And then chapter 10, those three verses tell us it's important because his name's not there, but it's important because Jesus, through Mordecai, also and more, seeks the, the two words there, welfare and peace of his people. So the story of Esther uh, doesn't merely tell us how historically uh, the people of Israel were saved from genocide, although it does, and very accurately, but it does more. In verse 18, and following the author, God ultimately wants this memorialized. He wants it remembered forever. That on 13 Adar, an earth-shaking deliverance took place. Mark it well. On the day on which the people of God and the seed of the Messiah were supposed to be wiped out, they were instead dramatically and completely delivered. It's a big deal, and the author says we ought not to forget it. And verse 28 is very adamant. It says every generation, every family, every province, in every city, this victory should never cease to be celebrated. I don't know if you've heard much about this, but uh, even today in Jewish synagogues, the whole story of Esther, everything that we've been looking at these past weeks, months, they read the whole story over Purim, that time of the festival, the evening of the 14th and the all day, part of the next day, the 15th. And this uh, reading in the synagogue, even now, is intended to be loud and boisterous, and there is booing and hissing and stamping of the feet and rattling of noisemakers called gregers. You can look this up, G-R-A-G-E-R. -E it's a 
got a little handle and you spin it. And to me, it sounds like when you put the bicycle cards in your spokes of your wheels, it pops. And so they're booing and hissing and screaming and spinning these things every time the name of Haman is mentioned in the reading. Heavy drinking is encouraged. <laughs> the Talmud, which is all the Jewish laws and legends, are you ready for this? Even encourages drinking until you're unable to distinguish between cursed be Haman and blessed be Mordecai. <laughs> Although that part is highly discouraged today, but you get the idea. It's a big deal. And today, there are plays and pageants and masquerades and uh, all depicting various scenes from the book of Esther. There's a festive celebratory meal. Offerings of food and money are made to the poor around any given synagogue. There is the baking, didn't know this, there's the baking of special three-cornered cookies supposedly representing a three-cornered hat that Haman wore. I had never heard that. Interestingly and more ominously and seriously, Adolf Hitler banned the observance of Purim. And there was a famous Nazi named Julius Stryker who made a speech on November 10th, 1938, in which he said this, just as the Jews butchered 75,000 Persians in one night, that's verse 16 from last week, just as the Jews butchered 75,000 in one night, the same fate would have befallen the German people had the Jews succeeded in inciting war against Germany. He said, if we hadn't stopped them, the Jews would have instituted a new Purim festival in Germany. And scholars tell us that Nazi attacks against Jews often were planned to coincide with Jewish festivals. And on Purim 1942, during World War II, 10 Jews were hanged to avenge the hanging of Haman's 10 sons. That's verse, chapter 9, verse 10 last week. And in a similar incident in 1943, the Nazis shot 10 Jews, and on Purim Eve that same year, 100 Jewish doctors and their families were shot by the Nazis in a place called, can't pronounce this, Czechoslovakia, in Poland. Well, all these examples, both from modern-day celebrations in synagogues and all that went on during World War II, all show how well and entrenched Purim was and is. So the name of the festival comes from the Hebrew word Pur in verse 26. You can find it back in chapter 3, verse 7. But in, in Haman's original plot to destroy the Jews, they rolled dice or cast lots to choose the actual day. And Adar 13 and 14 correspond to our March 19th and 20th. Purim is the happiest, most festive of all Jewish holidays. And in this passage today, we see Mordecai making the declaration itself in verse 20. Then he sets the dates in verse 21. And by doing this this way, he neatly resolves the conflict 
between the country Jews and the provinces doing it on the 14th and the city Jews in Susa doing it on the 15th. So do it twice. Do it the night before and the day after of that. And then thirdly, he establishes the character of the celebration in verse 22, which is to make merry the fact that you were delivered from your enemies. Whoop it up that your sadness has been turned to joy, that your mourning is now celebration. And this prefigures the marriage feast of the Lamb in the book of Revelation, which is represented here in this table. And then in verse 23, we see the response of the people. They agree. They're in with it to continue the celebration. In 23 through 28, there is a recounting. They, they rehearse all the facts of what has happened. And he's being careful to tell them the purpose. And we shouldn't miss it. You were in a deep, life-threatening crisis, and you received a powerful, dramatic deliverance. That's a very clear approximation and reference to the gospel, isn't it? For you were dead in your trespasses and sins, but you were made alive in Christ Jesus. You weren't merely the innocent victim of some plot gone horribly wrong. No, you and I, you were in fact the perpetrator. That's the deep life-threatening crisis, your sin and mine. You and I really do deserve that death edict. And that makes the powerful, dramatic deliverance all the more glorious. We, above all people, should be like the Jews in verse 27 who took it upon themselves and agreed to establish this custom. It was an act of the will, and so should we. They obligated themselves to remember and celebrate. I think that's a picture of what a Christian should look like today. We are people who have received a preemptive strike of grace and are therefore now self-consciously thankful beyond measure. I mentioned the laws of the Medes and the Persians at the end of this passage. Well, this is the grace answer to the law of the Medes and Persians. We don't respond to God out of drudgery and duty, oh no, another festival, but rather by pure thankful delight in what he has done for us in Christ. So do you, do I need a, uh, what we could call a duty versus delight attitude check this morning? Have I begun with the delight of the gospel, but have I, have we slipped into duty thinking? Elder brother thinking can be so devious. And so let's be reminded again as we try to do this that sin has two faces. The first and the most obvious, easiest to recognize one is what we could have referred to in the past as technicolor 6 o'clock p.m. evening news kinds of sin, murder, bank robbery, physical perversions of all kinds, but sin has another face, too. And as heinous and horrible as the first type is, Jesus seemed even more upset by the second type. 
The second type, the second face of the flesh or of sin is Pharisee sins, Pharisaical sins, self-righteousness, pride, envy, gossip. And you know Jesus meant no words here, calling the Pharisees whitewashed tombs, uh, death covered with a coat of paint, a brood of vipers. And what makes these religious interpersonal sins so bad is that they masquerade as good. And I believe Paul makes this kind of distinction by the use of semicolons. <laughs> what do I mean by that? Well, if we could have our slides, we want, to have, we want to refer to this passage in Galatians, but we're using the NIV. So go ahead. Uh, on the screen is Galatians 5, 19 through 21. He is contrasting here the fruit of the sinful nature, this, with the fruit of the Spirit that is following that we're not going to look at. But 19 and 20 and 21 in the NIV, and this is what I'm, why I'm putting this up here, makes it especially clear. Can you see the semicolons? The first, there's four groups or kinds or categories of sin up here. The first one are sexual, immorality, impurity, and debauchery, semicolon, if you can see it. That's the first kind, sexual. The second kind we can call religious or occult type sins, idolatry and witchcraft, semicolon. Semicolons are not in other translations. This is a decision by the NIV, New International Version translators, to do this. They think Paul was thinking this way. There's no punctuation in the original Greek. This is all what the translators think it meant. So, sexual, religious, or um, occult sins, and then, and this is, I'm getting to a point, after witchcraft, semicolon, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambitions, dissections, factions, and envy, semicolon. That's the third kind, and I'm submitting to you that Paul is following Jesus' idea of um, you brood of vipers. The, the fourth kind, briefly, is drunkenness and orgies. Those are sin, we can say, sins of excess. The NVI, Nueva Version Internacional, um, I think, because it contains the same semicolons, I think it's a translation of the NIV. Some of you will have to check me on that. The point I'm trying to make is Jesus and Paul here with him, is saying to us, how dare you attack those people in the other three categories when you, your list of pharisaical interpersonal sins is three times as long. That's what I think is happening here. Apparently, in Paul's mind, they too, they and 
they're the most prevalent and pervasive, but they need to be pointed out, I think, as much or even more than the other categories of sin. Okay, you can turn that off. I, you, you can study this later. I think it's fascinating this, how we got our translations and what the translators try to say and do. So Purim, in its gospel sense, is saying, if you have been delivered from the punishment for all those kinds of sins which you so freely participated in one way or another, if you were lost that way, but through no effort of your own have been found, if once you were dead, but now you've been made alive, get out the noisemakers. Give glory to God for what he has done for you. And so have you, have I drifted back, this is the duty and delight idea, have you or I drifted back into law-keeping having once been delivered from it? What has happened to your joy, Paul says in other places? Often happens, doesn't it? Joy gets bushwhacked by law-keeping. And from my own experience, I, I think part of the reason for this is, bear with me here, that I confuse grace with the law, and to put it in theological terms, I confuse my justification with my sanctification. What are you talking about? What do I mean by that? Well, justification is the one time never to be repeated event where I'm declared just and right before God based solely on the person and work of Christ on my behalf, not my work, and I appropriate that by faith alone. That's justification. Sanctification is a process that starts after the event of justification. That process of sanctification is God forming Christ in me day by day, and I confuse it by thinking an ongoing process of sanctification is the basis of the event. It's not. I wrongly think that my current behavior, my sanctification, is the basis of my right standing with God. It isn't. Jesus is the basis of my standing and your standing with God. I said I had confused the means of grace with the law and became a less than joyful duty not delight person. Now when I say means of grace, there are at least five basic ones, main ones, that God gives us to grow in our sanctification. They are the word, the Bible, prayer, sacraments, worship, and fellowship with other of God's people. Once you're declared just, having received the work of Christ as your law satisfaction through justification, now you want to have Christ formed in you, so God gives us these five means of grace, five ways you appropriate or grow in grace. You read your Bible, that's the word. You pray, meaning you talk to God personally now in a relationship. You receive the sacraments, baptism once, and take the Lord's Supper regularly in a meaningful, thoughtful way. As we're all here today, fourthly, you participate in worship by going to church on Sunday. And you fellowship with Christians, and you learn from them, and you be an encouragement to them. 
But wait, that sounds like five more groups of laws, five more duties to perform. My joy at being declared just, despite myself not being able to keep the law, Christ did that for me, that joy just got bushwhacked by what I wrongly perceive as five more laws. No, not at all. Think of them as five privileges that you now have that you didn't have before when you slaved away as a lawkeeper. Five new ways and new places to learn the glorious gospel of grace again and again. Five glorious sources, here's an illustration, of paint pouring through the sieve of your Christian life. What, what's that mean? Getting Christian truth and sanctification into the mind of a recovering sinner is like pouring paint through a screen wire mesh sieve. When you pour paint through a sieve, 99% of it goes on the floor. You pour more paint and the same thing happens, but a little sticks to the wires. So you pour again, and yes, much of it falls to the floor, but some sticks. Before long, it begins to thicken on the wires and you catch a little more of the Christian life by using the means of grace. But it takes time and it's messy and it will never close up completely in this life, but it does have a cumulative effect. And you might think that's hopeless and so you stop doing it. Well, that's not the lesson to learn from the sieve. The lesson is keep pouring. It is such a foreign concept to sinners to hear that now the righteousness apart, separate from my ability to keep laws, has been given to me from the outside. What a thought. This righteousness that we need isn't something you manufacture. It's something you receive. It's a sovereign, unearned, gracious, free gift. And I got to say, this, this has been a especially hard concept for, for me to understand. Well, let me accurately say this has been an especially hard concept for me to appropriate or live out of. I think I understand it well enough intellectually, which is half the battle, and for years as a Christian, I don't think I even understood it intellectually. I don't think I even heard it as such. Confession time. My family will tell you that I tend to be a skeptic, especially when it comes to TV shows or the news or especially advertisements. I just don't believe them. I've gotten to where I doubt just about every sales slogan I hear. We're here for you. No, you're not. <laughs> you're here to make a profit. We all know if it comes down to making a profit and staying in business or pleasing me as a customer, I know full well where your sympathies lie. In the restaurant business that I was in for 12 years before I became a Christian, we had that same saying, you've, you've heard it, the customer is always right. No, he isn't. <laughs> He's actually wrong a lot. 
Of course, publicly, you say he's right for appearance's sake. A little more confession, not real proud of this. Um, years ago, I was in line at the drive-thru at Burger King. It's been a while. Do you remember BK Minis? Burger King Minis, they were little sliders. Four of them in a, I think it was a long box. I love those things. And like many things, they take them away after a while. Well, they brought them back, and I was in line, and it says, BK Minis are back. And I said, oh, boy. So I am excitedly inching my way to the order microphone from the speaker. It says, welcome to Burger King. Can I take your order? Yes, uh, a mini four-pack, please. Now, on the order board, uh, it says, comes with pickle, cheese, and mustard. So I said, could I get mayo added to that? He says, no. <laughs> the minis come with cheese, pickle, and mustard only. Would you like a little packet of mayo in the bag with them? And all the while, I'm staring at the sign. You know their slogan, have it your way. looked in my rearview mirror, no one was behind me, so I got into it. And I asked, well, if I had ordered a Whopper and asked for extra mayo, could I have gotten it? Sure, he said. If I asked you to dip mayo out of the same tub, would you do that? Now, I ran a restaurant 12 years. I know a few things. I know how mayonnaise works. Well, yes, sir, we would do that with a Whopper. Well, would you mind putting some of that mayo on my four BK minis and not putting a mayo packet in the bag that I fumble with and spill and get on my pants? Can't do that. I said, the BK manager on Long's Pond Road does. And he said, that's a different manager. <laughs> oh, I said, so it's actually not have it your way, but have it the way the manager wants it. It's the real treat going out with me, I know, I'm sorry. <laughs> she, she's just rolling her eyes. I am redeemed. But when I read on the bag, the big letters, have it your way, I'm skeptical. I don't believe their slogan. Now, I realize there couldn't be a more trite comparison, but I am so glad God is not Burger King. I believe everything God says. Verse 29, Esther, along with Mordecai, wrote with full authority, and I believe it. Letters were sent with goodwill and assurance, verse 30. The days are established, verse 31. Established not just as a silly sales slogan that no one believed, but verse 32, the decree is confirmed and it's written in the records. Chapter 10, moving along, verse 1, and it spreads to all the corners and distant shores in the name of the king and of Mordecai. And this is only a foretaste and a pointer to the coming Christ and his kingdom and its decrees, good decrees. I'm not skeptical about that. We should mention, too, that feasts like Purim are good in and of themselves, but there's always a danger of looking too much at the feast itself. 
Uh, one of my favorite authors is Paul Tripp, and he often talks about looking horizontally to each other and to things when we should be looking vertically to God. So we need to ask the question, while we're trying to celebrate life's good times, but we can so easily forget the greatest gift of all right in the middle of the festival. We have that opportunity again this morning. Where is God is the question. We've wondered in the study of Esther if that really could be the reason for how God is so systematically left out of the book. I think the writer is creating a yearning in the true people of God. Unbelieving Jews, which is the majority of Jews today, can read and celebrate Purim and make noise and do all of that, but not see God. They can miss him completely. And that's the true tragedy. They could read those three verses in chapter 10 and not see the slightest hint of the Messiah or the Spirit or the Father in heaven orchestrating all of this. Here in our text, God the Father imposes tribute to the Son throughout the whole earth. It's hidden in plain sight right there. All his acts and of power and might together with a full gospel account of the greatness of Christ to which the Father has appointed and raised him are written indelibly in blood, blood red throughout all the scriptures. Jesus is on every page. Christ is preeminent among the people of God and held in high esteem by the church because Christ worked for the good of his people. And he speaks up for you and me on judgment day before the judge of all the earth. What I'm trying to say is if you can see Jesus and the gospel and the kingdom in chapter 10, then thank God and get out the noisemakers. Let the amen sound from his people again. So we close the book of Esther saying what we've said throughout. God is sovereignly leading and guiding his people and the seed line of the Messiah is intact and it's safe. Despite the evil plans of the enemies of the people of God, the progress of redemption is right on track. I'm reminded of it again this morning. As verse 3 says in chapter 10, Jesus, the greater Mordecai, gives all his people those two words, welfare and peace. So think about who you are today, where you live, who your family members are, your neighbors and your friends, and what today's date is, not in and of the date itself, but every day is not a fluke. It's not random. And remember, who knows, but you have come to royal position for people such as those and these, and for such a time as this. Let's pray. Father, thank you for you preserving the book of Esther in scripture for us, help us to see more and more your hand upon redemptive history and how you have moved heaven and earth to ensure that we receive both forgiveness for our sin and a perfect record of righteousness, neither of which we earned or much less deserve. You were kind beyond measure, 
we say again today with glad hearts that we love you and trust you. In Jesus' name.